holy. And he is holy. Having technical difficulties, I'll be right with you. Amen. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, first we thank you for your word that we uh, just read. We read that you are holy, that you are the God above all gods. You are the God above all the nations. And Father, we praise you and worship you this morning for uh, that fact. Father, we look to you as our as our God, as the one who who hears, as the one who sees, as the one who knows, as the one who encompasses all. And Lord, we look to you as our Savior, as our Lord, as our God and Father, as our Redeemer, as our hope. Lord, all of our hope is in you. All of our trust is in you. All of our praise is to you. All of our worship is for you. Lord, my prayer for our church as I've been thinking all week is that we pursue you, that we fight to pursue you. We fight with the Spirit's power, the Spirit's help to pursue you through your word, through prayer, through the means of grace through fellowship through the communion of other uh, believers I pray Lord that you be with us as we fight this battle against the world the flesh and the devil as we fight the temptation to sin as we uh, fight to uh, put off sin to put away sin and to put on uh, righteousness you have clothed us in Christ's righteousness but father we still have to pursue a righteous and and holy life with uh, what you have given us we live in a world that is increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity and Lord we as believers must fortify our faith must fortify our defense of the truth that you have revealed in your word. And Father, we can't do that with our own power because we are weak and feeble within ourselves. We, we will wear out from doing that. So Father, we pray for the Spirit's help as a church, as individuals who make up this church. And for all true churches, Lord, that 
are uh, true worshipers of you and true proclaimers of your truth that are led by uh, true uh, pastors and not false teachers and false prophets. Lord, we pray this morning uh, for uh, Mr. Lord, she's out of town, that you bring her back safely from visiting family. We thank you for giving her the opportunity to be able uh, to do that. That is something that she uh, longs to do from time to time. We thank you for the grace of uh, blessing her to be able to do that. Lord, we pray for each of our members in here, those of us who are, are um, perhaps battling different uh, health concerns, um, maybe financial struggles, maybe struggles in school or, or with peers and friends and colleagues and co-workers, uh, parenting struggles, marital struggles, whatever the case may be, Father, we, we lift all of them up before you, those who may uh, be battling uh, despondency and a uh, sense of hopelessness. Father, we lift all those up to you this morning. And Lord, we ask you to uh, help us to look to you in those times help us to look to you when times do uh, get hard because lord the the problem is mostly that we seek our own power or we seek the wisdom of this world which is foolishness rather than the wisdom which comes from your word and lord that is a great problem with us because of the the pride that that lives in the hearts of every single person that pride of of self-sufficiency that, that that pride of depending on ourselves and 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 worshiping ourselves and worshiping our own wisdom or, or, or the wisdom of uh, ungodly friends but father we pray for your wisdom we pray uh, for your instruction we pray lord that you give us a a, a mind to go to you in those times to go to your word to to get on our knees lord and to to cry out to you and lord you will hear our prayers lord may we be wary of sinners who try to entice us solomon in the book of proverbs gave wisdom to his son he, he said, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. He says, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. So, Father, give us that wisdom as sin crouches at our door of any kind. That wisdom to not walk in the way of sin, but to walk in the ways of your word. Father, we pray for our uh, leaders. We pray for their uh, repentance. We pray, Lord, for uh, you to cause their hearts to turn uh, to you in worship. We pray, Lord, that our leaders from Washington, D.C., all the way down to our uh, local 
city magistrates and county magistrates. Lord, that they be uh, honest and faithful to their spouses and children. That they be given godly counsel and God-fearing advisors. That they are practicing members of local congregations. That they be timely, reliable, and dependable. That they be honest in uh, financial and ethical matters. That they seek pastoral care and counsel when needed. That they may seek out and nurture godly friendships and godly relationships. Father, we need godly men leading our our nation. We need godly men leading our uh, states. We need godly men leading our cities. Lord, we need godly men, men who worship you as the one and only true God. That's what we need in our nation, Lord. That is what we need in our world, godly leaders, godly leadership. And Lord, that is what we continue to pray for, that you work in their hearts as they are elected to serve those citizens who put them in office. Lord, we pray for our uh, sister churches as we, uh, brethren, prepare to meet this week, this Thursday, uh, for the Counselors Conference as we meet. Father, we pray that you be uh, with all of us this Lord's Day, that we preach the word, that we be faithful shepherds of the flock, that you have given us, that you have entrusted to us. Lord, we pray that you continue to raise up faithful, godly men who will lead their churches in your way. Who will be orthodox in their doctrine and their theology. And Lord, we pray that you send those godly men to the false churches the false pastors and to call them to repent of the destructive heresies that they are uh, teaching their church members. And Lord, we pray against those false teachers. We pray against those false churches. We pray against apostate churches and apostate denominations that have departed from the faith that have been given over to Satan and given over uh, to the lies of, of, of this culture those false preachers and false prophets and false apostles. Lord, that they be called to repentance and preach the true Christ and not pollute the souls of those who listen to them. And Father, we pray lastly for your word as it is about to be preached. We pray, Lord, for the Spirit's help that the Spirit enables me to preach this passage well as we uh, look at the impact of the reading of your word and the effect that it had on these people and the effect that it can have on our lives. Father, assist me, help me. Father, I pray that your spirit illuminates the truths that we hear this morning. Show us your truth, Lord, by your spirit. And Lord, may You use the spirit to implant your truth into our hearts that we may not just hear your truth, but that we may live thereby. 
In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Let's turn to Nehemiah, the eighth chapter. We're in the eighth week of our series going through this great book. And now we're landed on the eighth chapter where the word of God is being read for the first time since the exiles have returned. And this chapter represents a great uh, shift, transition in this book. And the simple title of this sermon is They Read From the Book. And there's only one book that they read from, and that is the Word of God. Or in their case, it was the, the Torah. So we're going to read the passage and uh, go into our uh, introduction and observations and then um, exegete this passage with our principles. So it says here, and all the people gather as one man. And I'm reading from the ESV translation. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And besides him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Benaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashum, Hashbadanah. Zechariah and Meshelin on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, blessed the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Benai, Sherebia, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book. That's where we got our sermon title from. From the law of God, clearly, and they gave sense that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, 
for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each one on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Man, may the Lord bless his word. So, this is the second half of the book of Nehemiah, and it is transitioning from uh, the rebuilding of the wall uh, to enacting spiritual reform. So now that the city has been settled, you know, the, the temple was built uh, during Ezra's uh, time, and now the wall has been completed. So now the city is fortified, and, and now it is time to get down to the most important part of being the people of God, and that is spiritual reform. There's to be a renewed commitment to Yahweh and his law. And the events in chapters 8 and 9 that we'll see this week and next week take place roughly one week after the completion of the wall. So the people called Ezra to read to them the law of Moses. And as it was read, the people committed to it just as their forefathers did. So after hearing the law, the people are inspired to observe the Feast of Tabernacles or, the, uh, or of booths, as in some translations uh, call it. That was prescribed for the seventh month. And that was found in Deuteronomy uh, 16, 13 through uh, 15. And one interesting observation here is that Israel had been so ignorant of God's commands that the festival had not been observed since the days of Joshua. So we're talking about hundreds of years that this festival had not been celebrated that God had called Israel to observe. So hundreds of years had gone by since the days of Joshua. That was the days when they went into the promised land. And uh, uh, there until now, they had not observed. So that shows how far Israel had fallen from grace, how far they had uh, strayed away from worshiping God because they didn't even know until they heard the law that they were supposed to be doing this. 
And that is indicative of how far we can fall away from God's commands when we're ignorant of them because we don't read them. And that's what we see here in this passage. So we see here in this passage, the people assembled as one man. We see that also in Ezra 3 and 1. And they asked Ezra to read the law of Moses. And Ezra continued uh, to read. And they listened attentively. And they responded with worship. They renewed their commitment to obeying God's commands. And Ezra continued to read from the law of Moses. That's uh, what we see taking place throughout this chapter. So the big idea of this passage is that spiritual renewal and revival begins and ends with a commitment to the word of God and its commands. I'll read that again. Spiritual renewal. If we seek spiritual renewal in our life. Many people are praying for revival in our country. And we'll get to that in our message as we look at some of these points. But many people are praying for revival. Many people want spiritual renewal in their life. But it begins and ends with a commitment to the word of God and to its commands. So we're going to look at three principles in short this morning. The first one is God's word is valued. Now we're going to read uh, this excerpt from the commentary on the book of Nehemiah by uh, Raymond Brown. And uh, he says this about uh, this part of the passage. I'm going to read this for you right quick. And this is God's word is value. This is our first principle. Raymond Brown says, uh, and this book was written in the uh, early 1990s. So this, these statistics that he's going to give are from 1995, but I will contend that they're even worse now. And he's British, but this is what he says. He says, the latest statistics suggest that in England and Wales, the number of regular churchgoers who read the Bible on a daily basis is declining year by year. Of the 700 people interviewed in connection with a recent survey, only 15% were committed to day-by-day Bible reading. If you're doing your math, 15% of uh, 70 is roughly 50 people. I mean, 700 is roughly 50 people. Another 15% stated that they never read any version of the Bible outside of a church service. Now pause to say that that is sadly the case today. Some people who call themselves Christians who are professing Christians, the only time they read the Bible is in the context of a church service. And most times that's when the pastor is reading the Bible to them like I just got finished doing. You ever read Nehemiah 8 chapter before? Yeah, my pastor read it to me in church, you know. Uh, but, but sadly, that is a lot of experience for uh, professed Christians. The only time they hear the Bible read, the only time they read the Bible is in the context of maybe Sunday school or in a church service or during Bible study. It continues. Almost 40% indicated that they read the Bible at home only once a year or less. And then he continues uh, adding his commentary to that. He says, committed Christians who neglect the privilege and discipline of daily Bible reading are severing their links with vital spiritual resources. God speaks uniquely to us through his word. And if we close our eyes, I'm sorry, ears 
to this daily conversation, we cannot hope to develop into mature believers. Those who attended this Jerusalem Bible study meeting led by Ezra and Nehemiah have important things to say to us. They were wholehearted Bible students. So that's just something to think about that the the people and in these 12 first 12 verses, you see the phrase the people occur 13 times because this was all the people involved in this reading. And we must understand about the importance of Bible reading, the, the, the God's word being valued, that a decline in Bible reading leads to a decline in the church. Because scripture is not seen and revered as man's final authority. And unfortunately that is part of what we see in our culture, in our nation, and in our churches. That a lot of churches do not, the, the, the preachers that preach do not preach the Bible. They, yes, they may reference scripture, you know, they'll sprinkle some, some, some Christian references in there like putting the topping on the cake, but they don't preach the Bible. They don't revere the authority of scripture. And we see that in how our culture has gone. Why does our culture not have a respect for God's word? Because the church doesn't. We don't revere God's word. We don't value the authority of scripture. And so we see the results of it. When the church lets go of the Bible, the church goes and slides down into sin and all types of heresy. And that's what we see taking place. So, so these people valued God's word. And another thing to notice that God does not speak to us outside of his word. There's no extra or special revelation. You have a lot of wonky churches and a lot of wonky denominations that uh, talk about uh, receiving special revelation from the Lord. Well, I have news from you, for, uh, for you. If someone comes to you and says, I have a word from the Lord for you, you ask them uh, what book, chapter, and verse. Because if it's not coming from the word, then guess what? It is not a word from the Lord. When, these, when this Canaan was closed, that ended. This is the word of God. We have it right here in front of us. And so we see a value of God's word, and we see it in a few ways. Number one, the people were single-minded. It says here in the very first verse that the people gathered as one man. Though they were undoubtedly diverse in their backgrounds, they gathered as one man. They possessed a common desire to honor, apply, and obey God's word which would draw them closer together rather than cause division. You know what draws the church together? The word. You know what causes less division in the church? The word. When you depart from the word, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have division. The word of God is what we as believers unite around. The word of God is what we as a church, as the living church, we unite around the word of God. That is what unites us. It is God's word. And that's what we see here in these people. They had a common desire 
to honor God's word, to apply God's word, and to obey it. And Paul echoed these sentiments to the uh, church in his letters to the church. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. And this is what Paul wrote to the church of Corinthians about the word of God. And, and we see this to show what we unite around and who we unite around. So this is what Paul said here in uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And when he says uh, being uh, that you all agree, he's talking about agreeing around the principles of God's word, not just agreeing for agreement's sake. No, agreeing around the word of God, agreeing around the gospel. That is where their agreements were supposed to lie, in the gospel. And that is where all of our agreements lie, in the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13 11, Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. So it is a call for all of us as believers to be single-minded around one purpose, and that is to honor, apply, and obey God's word. Even Christ prayed for oneness among future believers in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed that we may be one as he and the Father are one. So it was important to the heart of Christ also. Number two, under this principle, we see that the people were enthusiastic. It says they told Ezra to bring out the book of the law of Moses. We see that again in verse 1. He told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. They were enthusiastic for the word. That's what they wanted to hear. They didn't want anything else. They didn't want to deal with anything frivolous. And from this commentary that I have, this is what the writer said concerning this verse. He says, just as these people took the initiative, we should encourage all Christian believers to take the initiative in seeking spiritual revival. The people already respected the law of Moses and recognized its authority for their community. It is significant that this reading of the law and the worship service were not centered in the temple and not controlled by the priesthood. From this time on in Judaism, the Torah was more important than the temple. Likewise for Christians, the living power of the Bible should be more important than any church building. Through scripture, the Holy Spirit brings people to abundant life. The word became so important to them that they wanted to hear it. Yes, the temple was finished. Yes, 
the wall was built. But what did the people want? They wanted to hear the word of God. So they summoned Ezra, bring out the book of the law so that we may see what it says. These people had a desire for the word of God. And this desire is only something that God could give them. It is not something that they could conjure up themselves. It was something that God could give them. And Raymond Brown said this in his commentary. He says, throughout biblical and Christian history, one of the characteristics of genuine revival has been the sovereign initiative of God in giving men and women a longing for spiritual things. It is not artificially promoted by religious leaders, but initiated by God himself. A true revival is something that God initiates. I don't know about you all, but I was part of a church culture where they had a lot of revivals. Like we had three or four revival meetings a year. You know, a preacher would come to our church and, you know, we would have revival for a week. And one thing that was revived was that preacher's uh, bank account. <laughs> because they took up an offering every night. Every night. And they would ask for seed offerings. I'll never forget this. I remember like it was yesterday. My brother and I were at some revival down at, at a church in Tuskegee uh, when I was a young Christian. And this so-called prophet was at that church. And, and he was saying, there's a $5,000 offering in this assembly tonight. And, and there are $100 seed offering in this church tonight. He started going down the aisle and, and, and pointing at people. And, you know, of course, you like squirm like, man, I hope he don't, he don't come down to me. He's holding that microphone. It was a pretty nice size church. Probably about 250, 300 people in that church. And he just working his way down the aisle doing oftentimes, pointing at people, saying, you know, the Lord told me you got a seed offering. Lord, Lord, Lord told me, you know, you got an offering. And, and then he's going to point at me and say, the Lord told me, you got to see it. I'm looking back like, is he, you know, cause sometimes you don't know whether the person pointing at you or at the person behind you. And I'm looking like, you know, that. And he just kept going. I'm like, no, 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 no. So we ended up, we ended up getting up out of there before it was over with. But those kind of revivals that we were part of, but those were man-made and man-manufactured revivals. They were not spirit-led. A true revival is one that is initiated by God. Why? Because lives are going to truly be changed. Souls are truly going to be saved. And these people that we see here, they desired the word. This was something that God had done. These people, these people had just come out of exile. They had just got finished building a wall and building a temple. I'm sure they were probably tired in, in spirit. If I weary from the building and dealing with the opposition and all those things, but yet they still had a hunger for the word of God. That enthusiasm was still there. They yearned for God's word. And God does not do this remotely. But as uh, 1 Peter 2 and 2 says, that we must desire the sincere milk of the word. Now, where does that desire come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit who works in us. It's not something that we can will ourselves to do. It's 
the cooperation, God's sovereignty, and human responsibility. God sovereignly saves us. God sovereignly gives us his spirit, and we respond and we cooperate with the spirit's leading. There are many times when I go through my day, and the Holy Spirit just prompts me to just pray, and I don't do it. There's times where I can sit and just spend five minutes just reading the word, but I don't do it. You know the best way to desire God's word? You know the best way to read God's word? Just read it. And if you don't have a desire, what do you do? You pray, Lord, give me the desire to desire your word. Don't you think, as I always say, that is a prayer that God will lovingly and willingly answer? If you don't have that natural desire, which you're not gonna, it's not going to be natural, it has to be spirit-led. If you don't have that desire, pray. Lord, I've lost my desire for your word. When David sinned against God, Psalm 51, he says, re Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Why? Because he had lost that joy because he sinned against God. He says, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He had to pray that because he lost it, because he did not feel the joy of the Lord, because <coughs> he had sinned against God. He said, restore to me. So he prayed. We pray for that desire. Lord, give me that desire. Lord, I want the desire. I want to desire the sincere milk of the word, as Peter said, that I may grow by it. These people yearn for it. And then next, under this principle, we see that they were attentive. It says, and the ears, in verse 3, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Once they were all together, the people let nothing distract them from this most holy duty and privilege. Adults can be inattentive in church just like young people can, laughing and giggling and not being attentive to the preaching of the word. And I say this all the time. Your adversary is the master of what? Distraction. He's the master of distraction. Your adversary don't, don't want you to hear to preach the word. Your adversary don't want you to read God's word. Your adversary would throw everything at you and the kitchen sink and the foundation of the house in order to deter you, Christian, from the word, from the study of the word, from listening to the word, from reading the word, from meditating on the word. It will happen. You could be having your quote unquote quiet time with the Lord and Next thing you know, you're thinking about how much money you got in the bank, and you pull up your mobile app. <laughs> okay. Then all of a sudden, you're like, man, okay. Get me back on course here. It happens. That distraction. But that attentiveness has to be there. The people were attentive. 
They expected God to speak to them directly through the word that he had given Moses hundreds of years before. They were eager. And this has nothing to do, maybe, maybe partly, but not all the way. But this doesn't solely have anything to do with the fact that they haven't read the word of God in a long time. It wasn't just for that reason that they were attentive. They were attentive because they desired the word. Time away from the word doesn't determine your attentiveness to the word. It has nothing to do with how much time you spent away from it. No, it has to do with the condition of your heart. Our daily reading of scripture must not be hurried and full of distraction. Instead, we need to allow time for the word to penetrate the mind, to stir the heart and to direct our will. The writer in Hebrews 2 and 1 says, Therefore, we must give the most earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. I've learned just personally to just take my time and read the word. Sometimes I'll read it over again. So like I'm reading through the Psalms. I haven't, I haven't there's nothing wrong with reading ahead. I know Psalm probably have. I don't read ahead because I want to meditate on what I read. I want to take notes and write observations down, just kind of let it just sink into my mind. I think I read Psalm 44 this morning. I think I either 43 or 44. But I just want to let it just meditate. Just, you know, let it sink in. I've learned to do that over the years instead of just rushing through. If this was 20 years ago, I would probably read all the way through Psalm 150. <laughs> you know, but, but th did I give myself time to meditate on what I was reading? Did I give myself the time to think about observations and what the what the Lord is saying through that, or am I just trying to check off a list or, 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 or trying to race to the end? So many times we can be guilty of doing that when we sit down and read the Bible. We we just want to get through it as fast as we can without really what did I just read? What is God saying? What what are some gospel principles in here? How can I turn this psalm into a prayer? You know, it's just all those things. That is that that helps with our attentiveness because we <laughs> we live in such a, a, a scatterbrained culture. So many things are vying for our attention. So many things are vying for our attention. Most, most of them come in the form of a, a, a five or six inch device that we carry around with us everywhere. Called a mobile phone or as the British say a mobile device or a cellular phone. Most of our distraction comes from that, right? Our electronic devices. With the one over one million apps in the app store. Think about that for a second. <laughs> over one, one million apps. Think about that. What does that tell us about our attentiveness? We need something to do with distract us we need something else to capture our attention I probably have this is a confession time here I probably have maybe 35 apps on my phone I generally use 
six of them regularly. The other ones, you know, they, they're there. I have to press them sometime to download from the cloud because I don't use, I use them occasionally, but not a lot. Why do I need all those on my phone? Why, why don't I just need six? Why don't I just get a flip phone? <laughs> no, no flip phone. I'm sorry. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but my point is, is that our, our attention is pulled in so many different places that when we sit down to, to read the word, we got so much going through it. Our mind. So many things in our mind. It's, it's the battlefield of the mind. So many things competing for our attention and our affections. Lord, give us an attentive spirit to your word. Also on the dispensable, the people were responsive. So it was read, and we see in verse 6, Ezra blessed the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. So the word was read. And Ezra blessed the Lord. He prayed God. And I like the way it's written here. He blessed the Lord, the great God. Why did he bless God? Because his word is great. Because as they read the law, they saw the greatness of God. Why were they responsive? Because they were responding to what? A great God. As the word of God is being read, as you read the word of God, uh, Christian, guess what? You are reading about the great God. He is the God above all gods. He's mightier than all these other gods that we have created and manufactured. Whenever you're reading scripture, understand this about the Bible. This didn't crystallize or become clear in my mind until about seven, eight years ago when I, when I heard uh, this in one of our preachers' meetings. When you're reading the Bible, you're reading the very words of God. We don't sit and think about that. When you're reading the Bible, you're reading the very words of God. You know how God speaks because what? It's right here in his word. This is how God talks. This is how God speaks. This is how God reveals himself. This is how God shows us who he is. Is. It is through his word, the great God. How do we know God is great? Because he has revealed himself in his word. He's revealed his greatness in his word. This is God's word. You want to know how God is? Read your Bible. You want to know how great God is? Read your Bible. Be responsive. The people made their own affirmations and of commitment and loyalty by verbally saying amen 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 means yes may it be so Ezra could not move forward without the people understanding what he was reading he couldn't move forward without them understanding in my new American commentary the writer says this about that part he says all the people responded in a splendid example of unified worship as the leader raised his voice in praise and the people responded. They responded by lifting up their hands in worship and showing a sense of need. They responded by saying amen, amen, and thus affirming their submission to the authority of scripture. 
and by bowing down to the ground with a sense of humility and submission to God. That was their response. When they lifted up their hands, the lifting up of hands in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, uh, represented a holy life. Those who lifted up their hands attested to living a holy life and obeying the commands of God. John MacArthur said uh, that hands symbolize the activities of life. Thus, holy hands represents a holy life. So the people responded, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands. They were testifying to the fact that they are committed to living what? A holy life before God. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan uh, preacher, said this in his commentary. He says, uh, Ezra blessed the Lord as the great God, gave honor to him by praising his perfections and praying for his favor. And the people, in token of their agreement with him in prayers and praises, said, Amen, Amen, lifted up their hands, in token of their desire being towards God, and all their expectations from him and bowed their heads in token of their reverence of him and subjection to him or their humility to him. He continues, thus we must adore God and address ourselves to him when we're going to read and hear the word of God as those that see God in his word very great and very good so you sit down to read your bible you can say father show me that you are the great god that's what we can do show me that you're the great god show me that you are the king of kings it's not that god is proving something we ask him to show us in his word well show me your greatness show me your worthiness Show me your holiness. And so that's what we see here. We see the holiness of God. We see the greatness of God being honored as the word of God being read. And that is to be our response. Raymond Brown said this about the responsiveness of the people. He says, from the beginning of their meeting, this eager congregation recognized that they were not listening to the words of Ezra, but the voice of God. What Moses had reverently and reliably written centuries before was God's unique word to them. So when Ezra opened the book, the people, convinced of its authority, rose to their feet. It was an outward expression of their immense reverence for the message of Scripture. He says this practice is still maintained in synagogues. Until this day when the Torah is read, the people stand as it is read in Jewish synagogues. Under this principle also about the God's word being valued, we said that the people were submissive. It says, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Not their faces on the ground, that's verse 6, but their faces to the ground. Not only did they raise to their feet, but they fell to their knees 
in holy submission because they recognized that the holy God of the book of the law was with them. So they submitted to the Lord. They did not bow down to the book, but they bow down to the God of the book. It's a big difference. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. We worship the God who wrote the Bible. We bow down to the God who wrote the Bible. John Calvin, the great reformer, he made the point that we owe to the scripture the same reverence as we owe to God since it has its only source in him. Matthew Henry said, let us learn to address ourselves to the services of religion with solemn stops and pauses and not to go about them rashly. Let us consider what we are doing when we take God's book into our hands and open it. And so also when we bow our knees in prayer and what we do, let us do it deliberately. Let us do it deliberately. In other words, let us know what we're doing. Let us consider what we are doing. Be aware of what we're doing. Ecclesiastes 5 and 1 says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Prudently means wisely. And draw near to hear rather than give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. That is how we are to approach it. And then lastly, under this principle about God's word being valued, we see that the people were teachable. The Levites gathered the people into small groups uh, and gave the meaning of the word and helped them to understand the reading. We see this in verse 8. They gave the sense, meaning they, they gave them understanding so that the people understood. So the way it happens was as the word was being uh, read from the front. It was such a large assembly of people that you know they didn't have speakers and amplifiers and microphones and all this stuff back then. Although as it was elevated, you still had a very large group of of people throughout the terrain, going up and down the hills and everything. And so as he was communicating, the the Levites they went throughout the crowd, giving the people understanding. So this this took a while to do. That's why it took all week uh, for the word of God, the law of the Lord, to be read. Because those Levites made sure that th they gathered the people into small groups and instructed them on what the law meant that they uh, had read. Some of them hearing it for the first time. They served as biblical interpreters to the congregation, basically. And no known signs of rebellion took place. It, uh, we don't see it in, in scripture, scripture that there was any, any rebellion taking place. So what this teaches us is that we must be teachable within the congregation of saints. We're not to be long rangers. We are to help teach each other, to help each other understand uh, the word of God. If it's something that I'm preaching that you need further explanation on, ask. I'm willing to sit down and, and uh, you know, talk through it together. And that's what we have to do with each other also. Second principle we see. Not only is the word valued, but it is applied. So the people's response to the reading of the law was evident and it was immediate. 
It was immediate. What did the people do? They wept. He said, this day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep. Why did he say that? Because the, the people were convicted. The first sign that God's word was reaching the hearts and informing their minds is that they began to grieve. They saw how far they had fallen from God's standard. They saw how far they had drifted from obeying God's commandments. They wept when they heard the words of the law. We see that in the second part of verse 9. When we fail to have scripture expose our sins, guess what? Our consciences will become seared. And our hearts will become hardened. If we read a good measure of scripture and scripture doesn't expose our sins, that means our consciences have become hardened. Our hearts will become hardened. And we'll lose that, that conscious view of our sinful state. If the scriptures do one thing, they heighten our awareness of how much we've dishonored and disobeyed God. If, if, if the scriptures do nothing else, it exposes how much we have not obeyed God. Paul talked about this about the law in Romans 7 that he did not know what it means to covet until he read the law where it said you should not covet. <laughs> it exposed his covetousness when he read you shall not covet. And Paul, oh, I'm a coveter. That's what the word does. It exposes our sin. When you read the word where it says you should not have no other gods before me. Oh, man. How many, how many idols do I have in my life? How many, how many people do I look to before I look to God? How, how many things do I worship and not worship God? We, it, it just convicts us. The people in this congregation saw the consequences of sin being played out in their hearing of the law. They saw it firsthand. But this is the great thing about Scripture. This is why we don't hide from the Word of God. The same word that convicts is the same word that heals God's word doesn't again we have to separate conviction from condemnation I say this all the time but it's true because I struggled with it before I knew better many Christians confuse conviction with condemnation who does God's word condemn it condemns sinners okay Christians are not condemned because Christ was condemned for us okay Christ bore the condemnation of sin on what the cross that's why Paul says in Romans 8 and 1, triumphantly, there's no, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The Christian is not condemned. Now, what the word does do for the Christian is the word convicts us of our sin. Conviction is where you know you did something wrong. You know you sinned. It's like when your parents catch you doing something wrong 
And man, that feeling just comes over you. You're convicted. You're like, man. Or you know you did something wrong, you sinned, and you know, I was I just I just shouldn't have done that. It's like immediately you feel that conviction. Condemnation is more judicial. It's like a, a sentence. Okay? Conviction is done by the means of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. So the same word that convicts is the same word that heals. Because in the passage here, despite the seriousness of their sin, they were urged to do what? To dry their tears. It says, do not grieve. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, this is Ezra speaking to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portion in on In other words, celebrate, don't mourn. Scripture not only condemns sin, but it also proclaims the remedy. There's always a remedy to sin. It says here in my commentary, the word of God when read has the power to transform lives today just as it had in the time of both Josiah and Ezra. The Bible convicts, changes, and guides lives. In the time of Ezra, the people realized that the Babylonian captivity was a result of disobedience, which it was. Only genuine repentance before God could bring about a real change in the community. The living power of the word of God still liberates people from their own various forms of captivity. Leaders point out God's mercy to the people. Those who teach must show God's justice and need for repentance, but must not forget to emphasize God's love and mercy. And we talked about it all the time, especially when we were studying through the Old Testament, that we see the mercy of God in how he dealt with Israel. He was very merciful to them more merciful than they deserved. And we always make a point to point that out. But when God's word is applied, guess what? It changes hearts. And we see this in the life of Christ as he goes about sharing the gospel message. He did it to expose the hypocrisy of his opponents. Yet he always called them back to repentance and a true worship of God. He didn't just condemn his opponents for the sake of condemning. No, he called them to repent. Yes, you are wrong. Repent. Yes, you are sinning against God, unbeliever. Repent. That is an act of, do you all, do all know that calling someone to repentance is an act of mercy? You're pleading for them to turn to the one who is going to judge them if they don't turn to him. Because those who don't turn to God in repentance, guess what? They're going to have to stand before God by themselves. Their moms, their dads, their friends, their followers on social media are not going to be standing next to them pleading their case. The Bible says all of us are going to have to give an account. When those books are opened and checks are being balanced, 
we're going to have to give an account. And the sinners are going to have to give an account for their sins. And they're going to be condemned forever. Because they heard the word but didn't apply it. They heard the call to repent but they didn't turn. They heard the come to Jesus call but they turned away. They did not apply that call. These people, they heard that word. They heard the law. They saw and observed how far away they had fallen. And they wept. It had an effect on them. But that mourning was turned to rejoicing. Scripture guarantees our resources. Verse 10 says, do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Christian, that's your call. That's your cry. In the midst of the sorrows that you face in this life, guess what? The joy of the Lord is your strength. He says, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. The reason for celebration was the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a joyous occasion. This was right at the time where that was to take place. The great resource, one of the greatest resources for the Christian is the joy of the Lord. Joy of the Lord means the joy that comes from the Lord, which all believers have because joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. You'll read it in Galatians, the fifth chapter. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. That joy that comes from God, saint, is what gives us strength every single day. Even as we grieve over our sin, we can look to joy because we can look to God with joy because we're not condemned. We have been forgiven. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Christ bore our condemnation on the cross. So guess what? That gives us joy. That I know as a believer that yes, I sin. Yes, I confess my sins. But I know that as I confess that my sins have already been forgiven. Past, present, and future. That the debt of my sin has already been paid. That I'm not condemned. That is the joy of the Lord. Through it we receive strength to celebrate what Christ has done on our behalf. In bringing us back into a right relationship with God. Praise the Lord for that truth. Our last principle here is God's word is shared. Verse 15 we see that. The spiritual heads of the families were to proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns and in Jerusalem. Proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. And that led to the Feast of Tabernacles. And we find three themes in this feast. Number one, we see Thanksgiving for the past. 
because this feast, this feast of tabernacles, it was instituted as a annual reminder of God's protection and provision as their forefathers traveled uh, through the wilderness from Egypt to uh, the promised land. It was a reminder of their uh, the debt that they owed to God for bringing their forefathers through the wilderness. <laughs> it was a reminder of his protection. That was one of the reasons for this feast. And it was also a witness in the present. It was an opportunity for them to proclaim God's word and to spread it to visitors, to strangers, as well as to children and young people, to the other people that gathered around them from the other nations. There's an opportunity for them to spread the word to them also, to be a witness to God's faithfulness to his people. What a great way to witness to those pagans. Why are y'all celebrating this feast? Why are y'all so joyful? Because God, the God of our fathers, brought them out of captivity. They were in captivity for 400 years and and God heard their cry and God struck down Pharaoh with these 10 plagues and 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 God instituted the Passover where the the death angel passed over the doorpost and and, and the death of the firstborn happened and 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 Moses led our people through the the great Red Sea and our people walked uh, across the Red Sea on dry ground. I mean think about how great of a testimony that would be to those pagans about showing how great their God is and and what God did for them in the past. That's a great witness to the children, to the young children of Israel, but also to those nations around them. And then it also gave them a confidence in the future, this feast. The people of Israel had a future hope to look forward to because they heard the reading of the law seven days every day no matter how disappointing their present experience was we as Christians know that the ultimate satisfaction is reserved for the future when Christ uh, with what Christ has promised us let me tell y'all something as I read through these applications Our present experiences may be hard at times, and they will be. But don't let that steal the joy that you have in the future that Christ has promised all of his people. When his disciples, when he was with them in the upper room in John 14, he says, I am going away. He told them I was going away. But he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be there also. That's how he comforted his disciples in their upper room discourse. Because he was about to lead them. He also comforted him by saying, I am going away, but I'm going to send back the comforter who is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And he's going to teach you all things and bring all things back to remembrance whatsoever I have spoken 
to you. He gave them comfort. That yes, I'm going away, but I'm still going to be with you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Your present experiences, don't let them cloud the future joy that awaits all of us. We can so focus on what's going on now. And it can look so helpless and so hopeless, but don't let that dim the joy that you have in the hope of eternity. That one day, you have to deal with sin anymore. One day, all your tears are going to be dried up. All of your sorrows are going to be gone. All the aches and pains and, and parts of your body you didn't even know existed are going to go away. That is the hope that we have as believers. And that is the joy that we share with others. And that is the joy that we encourage Christians with. Believer, persevere. We have a future with Christ that he has promised us. And whatever Christ promised, he's going to deliver. It's like Joshua when he was leaving. It's a, it's a uh, picture also of Christ. Joshua in his last address to uh, Israel in Joshua the 24th chapter. He said he, he's going the way of all the earth. And he told him, told them, he says, not one promise of God's word has failed. That's what he told Israel. Not one promise that God made had failed. Not one. God keeps his promises. Amen. Applications. Excuse me. Value God's word faithfully. Again, if you don't have the desire, pray for it. God will give it to you. Act on it. Don't pray and sit and wait. <laughs> I'm going to wait till that desire comes. No. You have to be intentional. It's like a habit. The more you read, the more you read. The more you don't read, the more you stop reading. Apply God's word practically. As we read it, apply it. Let it work in our hearts. Ask God to work his truths into our hearts as we read. And then share God's word enthusiastically. Share the truth of God's word as you read it and as you apply it. It's work, but it's worth it. God works in us mightily to accomplish this. We're not left to our own selves to do it. Paul tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is him, it is God who works in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. It is God who gives us the will to do these things. It is God who gives us the will to value his word. It is God who gives us the will to apply his word. It is God who gives us the will to share his word enthusiastically. He works in us to do it. And may God do that for each and every one of us. Amen. 
Let us pray and bless the Lord. Father, we thank you. We bless you today for your word. Lord, help us as a church, as individuals, to value your word faithfully, to apply it practically, and to share it enthusiastically. Help us, Father, in our weaknesses. Help us, Father, to always look to you for strength, to look to you, Lord, for joy, because as the word says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Father, be our joy this day. Be our joy this week. Father, thank you for blessing us with your word. May you apply it to our hearts and may we share it. In Christ's name, amen.